0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. When Alan Thomas called his last race almost three years ago, it brought down the curtain on the era of race broadcasting that produced showmen like Ken Howard and Bert Bright. Apart from being a knowledgeable and very accurate caller, Alan was also an entertainer, with just a touch of Ken and Bert in his delivery. A Queenslander from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, Alan was one of the most versatile sports broadcasters of his generation, and he plied his craft with great distinction for more than four decades. For 23 years, he was the voice of Queensland racing through the Sky Network, displaying all the verve and passion that had become his trademark. He's still a regular at the races in Brisbane in his managerial role with trainer David Van Dyke. Let's hear the lilting Queensland accent of Alan Thomas. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Al. Good
1: morning, John. I still drink Forex too.
0: <laughs> Thought you might. <laughs> now you've been in Melbourne for the whole Cup Week, and yep. I believe you're intrigued, to say the least. By the way, the track behaved on cup day after 51 millimetres of rain on cup morning.
1: Well, I've never seen it. I've never seen a a track go to soft to heavy, go to heavy eight and back to a six on the one afternoon. And I can tell you how hard it ran. I got drinks, so I was in it trying to get into the race course on the train. Mm. Um, I I can't. I mean, I can't. You you might have got one, say, from an eight to a six, if it was an eight at race one and it was a six by race nine. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't get it in a couple of races, as it did. So um, mm. whatever money the VRC spent at Flemington, it's obviously been worth it.
0: Well, they've spent millions and millions of dollars, Alan, on a drainage network, which they claim is the best in the world. And I think uh, Flemington proved it is the best in the world after rain. Yeah,
1: it's it's an amazing racetrack, Flemington. I, I um, you know, it's... I remember when I first went there in 1978, my, I guess as a kid growing up, my famous um, race was the Queen's, Queen's Plate when Tulloch beat Lord. Mm. And the first time I went to Flemington in 1978, I stood in the hill stand and I looked out over Flemington and I could see the race in my, in my brain. Mm. And uh, I fell in love with Flemington from that day and always have been. And I'm a regular visitor when I can for the big carnival races down here. I'm a member of the BRC. Hmm. and uh, I love coming back to Flemington. Every time I, I go to Flemington and I look out, I still see Tulloch and Lord, even though that was 1960. Hmm. Funny, funny what stays in your brain when you're a kid.
0: The ghosts of champions.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Alan, how have you handled the transition to Spectator on Brisbane racecourses? Brian Martin and Greg Miles both told me after they retired they were completely lost the first few times they went to the races.
1: Um, no, not for me. Um, you know, when I've called my last race, which is the Gold Coast on Boxing Day, um, which is nearly three years ago, I, I was thoroughly content that I'd called my last race. So, um, I've always liked the races. Um, I've always liked going to the races. I I love going to the races now because I can sit in the grandstand and enjoy the horses, enjoy the jockeys. And if I want to have a beer somewhere during the day, I, I can. And if I can want to have a bet, I can. Not that I couldn't. wasn't allowed to bet. I just didn't when I was broadcasting. <laughs> so I I quite enjoy going to the races. Maybe, you know, Brian and Greg. Yeah, it takes a, it takes a little bit of, of a adjustment, of a balancing act. Yeah, mm. and adjustments, that's the better word. Yeah, mm. a, adjustment. But I uh, I adjusted very quickly. I when, when I called my last race, I was quite happy to leave that behind and move on to other things. So I, I, I enjoy going to the races. I like it.
0: Can you get a four X at Flemington?
1: No, <laughs>
0: disaster.
1: Oh, can't believe
0: it! You've tro- never you heard you of tro-
1: Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> the bloke said, "Where's that?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Alan, that last call you're talking about on Boxing Day, 2015, will yeah. live long in the memories of those who happened to be watching Sky on the day, and I was one of them. You actually came out of the box. You got the Sky Crew to set you up with a bench and a binocular swivel right in the middle of the crowd, and you mm-hmm. call that last race won by Backman. Hey, that was a pretty good effort.
1: Yeah, well, I, look, the one thing I didn't want to do, and I didn't want to do this, was to call my last race by myself in a broadcast box. I couldn't think of anything worse, and I was walking along the beach one day, and I was thinking to myself, well, How am I going to to call this last race? I don't don't want to be in a broadcast box and then finish the race and be there by myself. So I thought, well, you you can't get to where I got in life without help, and you can't get there without the support of the public because in the end, they become your employer indirectly. So I thought, well, I can't thank everybody from start to finish in my whole broadcasting career which spans 46 years if you take in the Channel 9 years and everything else. Mm. So I thought, well, the the one thing I can do, why don't I go and call a race in the grandstand with the people around me, and that's the way I thank them um, for being my supporter over all those times. And and the people there that day can represent all the people that have supported me through the 46 years of my broadcasting through all, all lots of sports and particularly racing. So... That's what I decided to do, and, and that's what I did. And it's a, it was a little bit scary. Greg, Greg Miles wanted me certified. He was booking me into... Specialists <laughs> everywhere. <Yeah. laughs> he he, saw, he, came, he he came up the, for his last for my last night. And I went to his at Caulfield. He walked up mm. the grandstand. He looked up at me and just shook his head. Kept yeah, walking. He? Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: Alan, you surprised me. I, I must confess on the day because of the concentration factor. I mean, concentration is the single most important commodity in calling racing. Uh, yeah and and the lack of distraction uh, i mean you plonked yourself in, in the middle of 500 people
1: yeah well that wasn't probably the problem is make sure that i didn't get some heads in the way <laughs> yeah because i wasn't i didn't have much elevation and i just saw over the top of the umbrellas on the on the lawn stand but i've been used to people being in the broadcast box calling races all my life so people around me never worried me now I know there are some broadcasters who don't like people in broadcast box with them. They like to shut the door and be by themselves, um, and I totally understand that. And sometimes I did that myself. But an overall scheme of things, I've I've called races in the broadcast box with people there most most of my life. Friends come up, mates, and mm. whatever, whatever. So the people around me wasn't wasn't the problem. The problem was make sure that I, I could see the horses, particularly in the straight. So. Yeah. So anyway, we got through unscathed, and we called the race, and that was good. Uh, Gerald Ryan won it with Backman, and mm. and Kira McAvoy, who rode the winner, the man of the moment, uh, with his third Melbourne Cup on cross counter. He he came up into the grandstand after the race, and he signed his goggles and gave them to me, and they sit proudly on my uh, on my wall at home.
0: Terrific keepsake. Now let's go back to school days. You went to Rosalie Maris Brothers School right near Suncorp Stadium. How did you rate yourself as a scholar?
1: Oh, shocker. (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) Uh, Well, schooling was never going to take pride of place over sport for several reasons. A, I lived near Suncorp Stadium or Lang Park as it was then. Mm. I was in walking distance to the Milton Tennis Courts and I became a tennis player. Um, Obviously, I played football at school. Um, the Ithaca Baths were next door to SunCorp, so I became a swimmer. And then, and then, um, my father worked for Forex. He worked there for forty-three years, and that was just around the other corner. And the Milton State School was down the road where we used to play cricket on the on the big pitches down there. So, um, I was just born into a sports orientated family, John. And so all yeah. we, we ever did in our holidays, we We'd wake up in the in the early hours of the morning and we'd, we'd, we'd come in or come home when mum called us for dinner. And the, all the kids in the street, all they did was play sport. So school wasn't high my priority list. And also I knew a long way out that I wanted to be a race and sports commentator and I couldn't see school helping me in which I wanted to do that. And that brought me in trouble with the teachers who couldn't understand, see, the, the teachers being Morris Brothers and they were good men, I might add, and I became good friends with the teachers over a period of time. They thought because I went to the races every Saturday, my father worked for Forex, I was going to be a gambler, and a drunk. <laughs> well, well, they were right, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: you, you <laughs> so, mentioned but, your dad, Al. Uh, you've got dad yeah. to thank for your early interest in racing. He was a punter and a race goer, and you yeah. tagged along from very early days.
1: Yeah, I used to just go to the races with him. Um, I'm the youngest of four in the family. So I used to go to the races and, gee, I, God, I was small when I went mm. and I can still remember he hoisted me on his shoulders when Tullik won the O'Shea Stakes. I would love to say that it was the Brisbane Cup at his last start, but it wasn't it was the O'Shea. Mm. And I was, you know, I was only very young, but I could I could re- remember that I could remember the horses by the colours the jockeys had mm. <clears throat> and... I used to just watch the races. I, I didn't have any binoculars, but when they come in the last hundred metres, I knew what the horses were. So, and that probably started the the story to 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 my race broadcasting um, career. After that, but I could do that from a very young age. I used to listen to the radio all the time.
0: Alan, you loved the creek, the famous Albion Park track. Which finished as a thoroughbred venue around nineteen seventy eight seventy nine, to make mm. way for the trots, it had yep. a magic all of its own, and it saw oh, the creek. specialist horses would emerge every now and again, which became known as creakers, and you saw yeah. one of the best creakers, Red Seas.
1: Well, he was amazing, Red Seas. He he could you know he, he'd run at Albion Park with. I don't know what's eleven stone. The old days were fifty sevens, nine stone. So mm. he's had uh, sixty eight kilos or something on his back, maybe. Mm. And he'd win, and he'd towel them up. And then you go to Doom in two weeks time against the same horses to be on the minimum of forty seven and run tenth. Yeah. And then you go back to the creek in two or three weeks time with another sixty nine or seventy kilos on his back, and towel up the horses that beaten him by ten lengths to start before. Yeah. Mm. Um. So they were a special breed of horse, um, you know, Stradbroke horses used to run. They used to have a race called the Albion 2000. Mm. And I think, pardon me, you'd won the Oakley Plate, who started favouring in the 10,000, beat Prunder, who mm. went second in the Stradbroke. So you'd go, you'd go there in those days and you'd see the best sprinters in the world or in Australia at the time running at Albion Park on the sand. Mm. And then there was the famous one with Basalt and and They were the best two-year-olds of their year. Basalt, Colt and Emborn was a filly. And everyone said, well, and they had both had blinding speed, so they said, I wonder what will happen if they ever take them to the creek. Well, they did. They did. And Basalt drew inside Emborn, And everyone went to the races to see which horse would lead to the turnout of the straight, because the race was a 14... 50-metre race, they start at the bottom of the straight. Mm. Now, everyone knew that Basalt and Emborn would have too much speed for the rest, so they they came out of the gates flying and both horses wanted to lead, but what happened was when they got to the first turn, Basalt couldn't take the turn and Inborn was outside, him. they both went through the outside fence. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so that was the creek. that you, you never knew what was going to happen at the creek. Yeah, and get, the other good thing about mm-hmm. it, you could always back a winner there, and the other good thing about it, You knew when they were going to win and you knew when they were gone. And it was a long way out.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, it produced specialist horses and it produced specialist jockeys. George Moore told me once, you hadn't ridden in a race until you rode at the creek. Which jockeys do you remember excelling on the little sand circuit?
1: Well, the jockeys, you ask Larry Olsen and Mick Dittman and these guys, and you're talking of the greats of Australian racing when you mention those two. They, they, That's where they learnt to ride, George Moore. That, that's where they learnt. Neville Selwood. They, they learnt. You, I remember George Moore telling me one day he he learnt to ride at the creek. Mm. Yeah, you, you had to be able to ride. Just you can't. You couldn't sit on and just give him a slap at the furlong. You had to ride, manoeuvre, steer them, balance,
0: really steer the, them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um. But my father said to me one day we're talking we're going to the races, and he said, oh you're going to see the best creek rider of all time today. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, who's that? He said, a jockey called Russell Maddock. He said he's in England, and he comes back to ride. He said he's the best creek rider I've ever seen. And, mm. I, and it's a funny thing, you, you, things you never forget. I don't know, if it, don't know what year it was. It must have been in the early 60s or something. Mm. And he said, uh, he's back riding today. So I picked up the paper, and he had a ride in the first race. And I said to Dad, I said, oh, this will probably win. He said, well, I'm backing it. <laughs> and I'll never forget its name to the day I die, Casual Star. And mm. it won. It mm. little in it. So it was a unique place and I was very fortunate. That its last day I got to call a race there with all the other race broadcasters. Everyone called the race on its, on its last meeting. Mm. So, um, yeah, I love the creek and I, and I always won a quid there, so I, was, I liked it.
0: Doug Meshingham uh, had the key to the place. Arthur Lister rode a lot of winners there too, Alan.
1: And then he did, and, and, and Messingham was a good rider anywhere. Mm. I think you've probably saw him with a Derby on Battleside that horse. Battleside, yeah, yeah, I did. Mm. So uh, Arthur Lister, um, oh Bronco Conquest, all these sort of guys, that, you know, in the you know you're going back to the 50s and 60s, You're going back away way a lot of people wouldn't remember who they were, but now nah, it was unique, and you had to be tough to survive there.
0: An ex-jockey called Neville Allen who worked at your local butcher shop, arranged an an interview for you with the great Keith Noud, race caller and racing editor of the Brisbane Telegraph. You'd just completed year 10 when you went to Mm. see Keith.
1: Well, my school grades at 10 weren't flash, to say the least. Uh, I think they called for the developed print for a pass (laughs) and I got over the line. I I must have been out wide and I didn't see me. So... Neville Lynch had got, got me this interview with Keith Now, and I went and saw Keith, or Mr. Now, as you called him in those days. You never call him Keith. My mm. God, that would be the end of you. So I went and saw Keith, and I said, uh, you know, I want to be a race caller, uh, and I had a tape of, of a phantom caller, what I did or something, or runner. Mm. And he said, Alan, I'm not going to do anything with you until you do grade 12. He said, you've got to do two more years of education. He said, you do two years of, uh, and finish in grade 12, Give me a call and we'll, we'll see if we can do something. So that'll be the deal. So I went home totally depressed. My father had a meeting with the, with the principal of the school and, and and the principal said, well, Mr Thomas, Alan probably won't get past grade 12. His marks in grade 10 would suggest that he won't. But he, the two years he does in grades 11 and 12 will help him growing and maturing as a, a young man because, A, he'll be a prefect, he'll have responsibilities, a, he'll captain the tennis team. B, uh, C, he'll be in the cricket team. And he'll all probability play in the first 15, either grade 11 or grade 12. So he'll, he'll be able to grow and mature. And that, that will be worth the two years, even if he doesn't pass. Well, as it turned out, I did pass grade 12. And I did all those other things I mentioned. So when, when I finished grade 12, chemistry was the last exam. God forbid what I was doing, doing it. Well, I got chucked out of class in the chemistry exam one day. Not an exam. What I what actually happened? We had this teacher I never got on with. It was a long weekend. It was the Brisbane Cup weekend, and there was there was a obviously a Stradbroke Brisbane Cup, and there was Ballarat. There was a test at Ballymore I think on the Sunday, and I went to the, I went to the lot of them. I went to the Stradbroke and the Saturday. I went to the, the football on the Sunday. And I went to the Brisbane Cup on the Monday. And chemistry was the first period Tuesday morning and and this teacher called me out to do this experiment with a Bunsen burner, or whatever they had at the time. And I said, I've got no idea. So said, I haven't got a clue. I said, you know where I've been all weekend. I'll be at the races and the football. <laughs> so he kicked me out. But anyway, that's beside the point. So anyway, chemistry is the last exam. And walking out of, out of the college, there was a, a rose garden. And as you walk down the stairs or up the stairs, and I had all my, you know, pencils, and whatever I had for the whole, and I chucked the lot in there. I threw the lot in the rose bush, <laughs> but I had enough, but I thought, oh, this is, you know, I don't have to see this godforsaken place again, you know, even though I loved the school and, I, I, and I'm a strong Rosalie boy through and through, I hated school. I couldn't wait to get rid of it. So I walked down the stairs. There was a red telephone box. I had some money, rolled the coins down. Keith now had answered the phone. And I said, I'd tell him Thomas, Mr. Nowd. And he said, yes, I told you you had to go back and do two more years before you could ring me. I said, well, I've just finished grade 12. He nearly dropped the phone at the other end. And I said, Mr. Nowd, we had an agreement two years ago. If I did grade 12, you'd help me. So I said, I've kept my part of the bargain. And I said, I hope you'll keep yours. He said, come and see me. And that's basically how how it started. And then uh, 12 months later, the Gold Coast went into Saturday racing because mm-hmm. they were a part of the midweek circuit. Obviously, either Vince Curry or Keith Nowd who couldn't call the races in those days because they had to be at Eagle Farm with Doobin on a Saturday. And I got the job to share the PA with uh, a fellow called Johnny Keith. And that's how I've started broadcasting races at the Gold Coast. So um, 1st of January 1971, I was 18 and I called my first race on the PA or the second race. I I did a trial to try and get the job at a midweek, but officially that was my first day. So that's where I started and I stayed there for a, a number of years.
0: For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group One wins and the only auction house to sell a Group One winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. 1975, Alan, you got a job with 4BC. You spent part of your time in the sales department, part of it in the sports department.
1: Yeah, I did. And, I, and how I got the job, there was a... Bob Stevenson was the manager for BC. He's one of the greatest men I've ever met. And he was a greatest radio man, but he was a really good guy. And, he, and I was doing part-time work, and Wayne Wilson had gone on holidays, and I went in to get some gear to go to call the Tweed Trots on Friday night because I did Tweed Friday night, and Albion Park Saturday night. So anyway, um, he said to me, you, you don't have a job. I I wasn't working at the time. I said, no, Mr. Stevenson. He said, well, we can't have a young bloke like you walking around without a job. He said, what are you doing here today? I said, I'm going to call the races for Wayne because he's away. Okay. He said, come in on Monday and you can start here. I said, doing what? He said, I don't know. (laughs) I said, I'll find something for you to do. So I walked in on Monday and uh, walked in his office. He said, oh. I employed you on Friday, didn't I? I said, "Yeah, you did." He said, "What for?" I said, "I don't know." <laughs> he said, uh, so he phoned Harvey Collins, who's the sales manager, and Harvey came in. He said, "You know, Harvey, yeah, I oh, know Harvey, yeah, g'day, Alan. And Bob Stevenson said, "I've employed Alan. He's now working for Radio Station Four BC." And Harvey said, "Congratulations." Shook my hand. <laughs> he said, "What are you doing?" I said. I don't know. And Stevenson said, "That's your job finding something to do." <laughs>
0: <laughs> was great fun. So that's how
1: I started at Four BC.
0: Two years later, another radio station came into your life.
1: Yeah, Four KQ went into racing, um, and I went there. Called the, the races in conjunction with Des Hoisted in Sydney, Bill Collins in Melbourne, um, through the TUE E three DB networks. Mm. And whilst I was there, I. I'd, I did some previews for Channel Nine, and the racing finished in 79 at uh, KQ. And then uh, the news director approached me and said, "What are you going to do when the races finish at KQ?" A fellow called Ren Winders. I said, "I don't know." He said, "Well, why don't you come and work for Channel Nine? Why don't you come and work for us full time? Because we don't have a sporting department. We've got the <clears throat> Commonwealth Games starting in 1982." And we don't have a sports department. Seven and 10, I don't know, or Channel O, it might have been in those days, they had a sports department, but nine didn't. So in 1980, when the Moscow, just before the Moscow Games, um, I went to Channel Nine and I headed up or started the, the sports department of, of Channel Nine within the news operation and yeah. and uh, stayed there for 13 years.
0: They didn't have a sports department, so you were a pioneer in one way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I went and set it up, yep. Yeah.
0: Alan, racing memories. Going back to 1961, you've mentioned this already. You were at Eagle Farm with your dad on that emotion charge day when the great Tullock bowed out with a win in the Brisbane Cup with nine stone 12 on his back. That's about 62 and a half kilos. More. Yeah, well, and- I
1: actually wasn't there Brisbane Cup day. It was Aero Shea Stakes Day. Uh-huh. I didn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't. I, I loved to have been there the last day. I'd love yeah. to have seen him win.
0: Well, Moore um, was but, moved, and so was Tommy Smith.
1: Yeah, so the, you know, Talic to me, I, I knew everything about him. I still do. Um, he 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 was my favorite, my favorite racehorse. Actually, there's a there's a very good story about Talic. Talic was never Talic was never to run. Well, it wasn't it wasn't certain that he was going to run in the Brisbane Cup. He was to run in the O'Shea. And he wasn't, it wasn't at a, at this particular time I'll get to. Keith, Keith Nad was on the Children's Hospital Peel um, Committee, and he phoned Tommy Smith. He said, you're bringing Tulloch up for the O'Shea because you'd won the year before. Mm. And he said, yeah, I will. And he said, good. He said, we're having this fundraising at Albion Park Racecourse on the Sunday. Can you bring Tulloch down and parade him and, you know, we can charge a dollar a pat or something or whatever it was and we can raise some money or we'll mention that he's coming and, and would you do that? And Tommy said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You can promote him. I, he'll win the O'Shea on the Saturday and then I'll bring him to Albion Park on the Sunday and everyone can see him. In the meantime, and this is, this is months and months earlier, this is before he probably ran the Sydney Cup and was beaten by Sharply." So then they decided to bring him up for the Brisbane Cup for his last run. <clears throat> so with that, Keith now had phoned Tom and said, listen, now he's going to run in the Brisbane Cup on the Monday. You know, don't bother bringing him down. We can't, we can't take the risk of bringing him to, to Albion Park on the Sunday, the day before, um, in case something goes wrong. And Smith said, no, I promised that he'd be there and I'll bring him there. And he did. Yeah. He took him there and he won the Brisbane Cup the next day.
0: No, he was true to his word. Anything like that of a promotional or, or charity uh, involvement, Tommy Smith was always true to his word.
1: Yeah. He was, a, he was one of my favourite people, Tommy Smith. He, I, spent, I didn't spend a lot of time with him. I interviewed him on a number of occasions. I was in his company for a number of occasions, but the time that I was in his company, and we don't have time to, to tell all the stories today, he, he was amazing. I, just to give you one... It was on the Tuesday before a Stradbroke broke, and, Tom's, and it was pouring rain. And Tom's there, and he's got this suit on. He's got the thro- three-quarter cashmere jacket. He's got the shiny shoes. He's got the hat. He's got the best shirt, the tie. And it's pouring at Eagle Farm, half past five in the morning, the mud and everywhere. And I said to Tom, why in the name of goodness would you be dressed like that in the rain on a Tuesday morning at Eagle Farm track work? And he said... Son, I I can't talk the way he did. If you're the best trainer in the world, look like it.
0: (laughs) That's where the modesty came in. Yeah. Hey, Alan, from a race-calling viewpoint, there's one particular Group 1 race in Brisbane that you've never forgotten, the 1979 Doomben 10,000. Can you still see them over the last 200 metres?
1: Yeah, I do. Manicato. Um, Manacato, of course, was the champion, as we know, champion sprinter. He was a three-year-old at the time. Bob always brought him up to Brisbane f- for one run in the 10,000. It was a funny, he was a quirky horse, Manicato, because he wouldn't go anywhere without a little pony. He had a pony, and they couldn't, mm-hmm. they couldn't even get him across the road to gallop him if the pony wasn't there. Yeah. That's another story for another day. So anyway, he, Gary Willets rode him. He had nine stone or 57 kilos on his back for a three-year-old bit like baguette and then he he was in front but it was one of those finishes you never knew if he was going to hold on and you didn't know if they were going to get him and there were horse I can remember imposing came at him still blade at a crack at him um uh Kaska came down the outside fence late and flew and charmosa came up the inside rail late and flew so I think there was probably a neck between five of them when they hit the line, and he held on. And the reason I I've, I've always put it down as one of the hardest races I've ever called because you just didn't know whether he was going to hang, you didn't know whether he's going to win or whether he's going to run fifth. But Manicato being Manicato, he, he found a way to win.
0: You call Kingston Town in his Queensland Derby win probably yep. one of his most unimpressive wins. And he might have had enough by then, Alan. He just raced like a tired horse that day. Still won, of course. Uh,
1: well, you, well, you call him winning the derby in the Sydney Cup. He, mm. You know, he was the real Kingston town there. Mm. And then he came up and Tommy wanted to run him in the Brisbane Cup. Anyway, he, <clears throat> he ran in the derby. I think he beat Red Kilt and Prince yeah. Ruling, I think.
0: Red Kilt, um, correct.
1: Yeah, and he, didn't, and he didn't win by much. He might have won by a length and a half or something. You know, he didn't. But you could tell on the day I mean you imagine the thrill it was, you know, for me mm. um, to, to call Kingston. Now, I never thought I'd get to call Kingston town, but anyway, as luck have it I did, and he won the derby. And then Tommy was smart enough to know he'd had enough and he scratched him out of the Brisbane Cup, so so at least at least I got to call him.
0: One of your most indelible memories stems from the BTC Cup in two thousand and eleven when Black Caviar had her one and only Brisbane start?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I, I always had it in the back of my mind she wouldn't run the 10,000, although Peter Moody said she would. But I just I just had a feeling that she wouldn't. I don't know why. There was no specific reason for it. It's the biggest day I've seen in Brisbane racing. I mean, I saw Gun Sins Farewell. Um, I was at Eagle Farm. They brought Occy up before he retired uh, to parade but the the buzz the buzz around Brisbane forget the race course, but the buzz around Brisbane when black caviar came was amazing there was I, I was sitting with a, a guy in a coffee shop on the way to the races and we' were talking about what black caviar ha- did for racing in general and there was a young guy serving in this coffee shop and He was a groovy, dashing sort of a young guy, and he had tattoos, as they all do in these modern days. It's part of their life and earrings and all that sort of stuff. And he was a a very good waiter, nice young man, very mild-mannered. And I thought, this is the tester. And I said, I'll see. I said to the guy, I'll show you what I mean. I said to this young guy, I said, excuse me. He said, yeah. I said, does black caviar mean anything to you? He said, doesn't mean much to me, but that's the horse, isn't it? Do mm. so, so yeah. you ever go to the races? I've never been the race course in my life. Yep. He said, "I don't go to the races," but he said, "I know who Black Caviar is," and that's what she did. A la winks. You know, mm-hmm. everyone, everyone knew who she was, even though you might be a racing person. You know, no go to the races. Everyone knew who she was, and that day was 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 just a thumping day, and, uh, and of course she won, and she she beat a Been a good feel.
0: Did you think about what you were going to say in the call, or just let it happen?
1: Well, it's funny. I said to Milesy, I said to Milesy, "I'd rather be me than you because you've got to come up with lines about twenty-two times." I said, Mm. "I've got to come up with one." Mm. So, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to say. And then one day, I was walking on the beach. I get a lot of. I get a lot of things in my head walking on the beach. Let me tell you. Mm. So I'm walking on the beach with a mate of mine. And he said, "Ah." Well, he said, I hate black caviar doesn't get beaten. And I said, Oh, well, are you going to blame me? He said, No, he said, Start number 13, it's it's unlucky. (laughs) I said, So that's where I got it from, where I said, um, Start number 13, unlucky for some, not for this one. Because my mate said, Oh, you know, the, the number, he said, You only get one crack. I said, I'll get one crack at this. He said, Could you imagine? If she only gets beaten once in your life and you're the caller, I said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I need, mm. you know. Mm. So so I went and bought myself a new pair of shoes and went off and called the race, and the rest is history.
0: Why did you need new shoes to call Black Caviar's race?
1: Well, I needed something. It was a special day. It was just a special day, and I thought, oh, you know, what am I going to do? I mean, I had this Sky Channel suit and tie and all that, and I got all that, <laughs> all that done, and I got it all... Dry clean and made sure you know everything was spick and span. And I thought, no, nah, I better go and buy myself a new pair of shoes. I I feel more comfortable calling Black Caviar and Black Chaviot in, a, in a new pair of shoes. So oh. I went and bought them and wore them to the races. And I've still got them.
0: Mm. You're a bit strange, you Queenslanders, at times.
1: It's very
0: hot up here. Alan, <laughs> <laughs> I'm well aware of the jockeys uh, for whom you've had special admiration over the years. I know you had a fascination with the talents of Lester Piggott, Mick Dittman, Roy Higgins was a great favourite, as was Jeff Lane way back, and more uh, currently, Zach Purton, Karen McAvoy and Douglas White, who's... Uh, achieve remarkable things in Hong Kong, but one of your great favourites as a rider and as a person is that remarkable trailblazer, Pam O'Neill, Australia's first licensed professional female jockey. And you're trying to do something to honour the name of Pam O'Neill.
1: Yeah, I do. And, I'm, and I'm, I must include me. I'm Larry Olsen, in that group of, of jockeys. Um, He's one, of the, he's one of the most prettiest, fluent riders I've, I've ever seen, Larry, and, the, and a great judge of horses. Back to Pam, um, I could never understand why in Queensland we didn't have a race named after her. I mean, not only just as a trailblazer for women riders, but things she's done for the National Jockeys Trust and everything else and the, the helping with the training of the apprentices and keeping in mind when she got her... her um, um, her license, apprenticeship to the road, they wouldn't give her a claim. So she's riding against Mick Dipman and Graham Cook and Mel Shoemaker without an allowance. You know, and she's just starting off. Mm-hmm. So, what's happening next week? So, anyway, to, to, to get to, to the point, to the pricey of all this, um, there's a business racing um, group up here called Early Thoughts, and I'm a part of that. And then um, a fellow called Alex Penkless who runs the hotels at the airport, is one of the, the leaders of the PAP, um, along with Corey. And we had a meeting and we decided that we're going to try and get the Pam O'Neill race up. Now, we've had support from Racing Queensland and Sky Channel are going to sponsor this race next Saturday. It's, it's It'll be called the Pam O'Neill. Now, the idea of it, it won't happen this week because um, of because the race doesn't suit. But the race that we want to call the Pam O'Neill is a mares race at the carnival eventually in Queensland over 2,000 metres for four-year-old mares and up. So there's no Group 1 race in Australia. The Matriarch was run yesterday at Flemington, Group 2, over 2,000 metres for the four-year-old mares and up. So because, because our winter carnival really runs into the breeding season, um, and you've got the Tats Tiara, which has now become one of the really great fillies and mares races of the Australian turf. Um, because all the, all the fillies and mares are trying to win it before they go to stud. Mm. Um, I think this race can turn into the same for the mares. Um, we're going to start off a very low key on Saturday, next Saturday. Um, it's not a four-year-old mares and upwards. It's, 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 it's another race, I think. it's. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it might be the 2,000 metre race. Um But eventually, we will get around to making it a mares' race over 2,000 metres and hopefully over a period of time like the Tats Tiara, which started off as a lowly named Winter Stakes, Mm. which is now Group 1 Tats Tiara. We hope to turn the Pam O'Neill into a Group 1 race at the Brisbane Winter Racing Carnival in years to come. And that would would service and um, really honour Pam O'Neill, who's one of the great people in Australian racing and uh, what she's done for for like all these lady riders, all these like Michelle Payne and all these people that come along. Pam O'Neill started it. She was the trailblazer. She went through hell and high water to get a license for women to ride. And now you see all these wonderful, talented lady riders in this country today. If it wasn't for Pam O'Neill, they wouldn't be there.
0: Well, our time's beaten us as it always does, but in closing, I simply want to say that I'm well aware of your two greatest weaknesses. One of them is horse <laughs> racing and the other is a corned beef roll provided the mustard has been allowed to melt into the butter. You can't help yourself.
1: No, and in Ipswich, in Ipswich are great because every time you win a race... You get the corned beef roll in the committee room, <laughs> which is which is why I say to Van Dyke, you got a horse, take it Ipswich. If, I can if, you, think, beef if you think one can win, take it Ipswich. And the worst part about it is he's worse. He's worse than the corned beef rolls that I am. So we don't fight over much there.
0: Alan, <laughs> it's been a great delight catching up and having a chat about a wonderful career. You've been one of the the best of your generation. There is no shadow of doubt. Everything from state of origin to world boxing titles to a, a great array of uh, of sports, which you've covered with uh, great accuracy, great verve, and great passion. Congratulations on a magnificent career, and thanks for talking to us today. It's a pleasure,
1: John. Anytime.
0: For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for group one wins and the only auction house to sell a group one winning two year old. They sold four in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis number one in its field.